Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Marilyn Waite, Program Officer Environment for the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. The Hewlett Foundation is a nonpartisan, private, charitable foundation that advances ideas and supports institutions to promote a better world. Marilyn manages the foundation's grant making on climate and clean energy finance with the ambitious goal of addressing climate change by accelerating the transition to a climate-friendly economy. Marilyn is also the first guest that I've had on the podcast that comes directly out of the foundation world. We cover a lot in this episode, including Marilyn's work at the Hewlett Foundation, the types of projects that they support, how they determine which projects are a good fit. We talk about the strategic plan that they rolled out recently and some of the core areas that they'll be leaning into in the years to come. We talk about some example projects that Marilyn is particularly excited about. And we also talk about how they measure success with the grants that they make and and the role of the Hewlett Foundation and of philanthropy in general in the climate fight. It's a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Marilyn Waite, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad. To, well, thanks for hosting me. Well, this is sort of your, your office. It's your, your, your satellite office here in Oakland. This is the new Energy Nexus office. I'm excited to talk to you. So Alicia Seigers, who suggested that, that I, I reach out, but as it turns out, I know you work with with the Prime Coalition team, and, and I've gotten to know them pretty well, and they're great. And I'm sure we, we, we know a lot of other people in common as well. And this is actually the first stop on my climate journey, either on the podcast or just in general, that's actually talking to a foundation. And it's such an important piece of the puzzle. And this is the icebreaker for me starting to better understand that perspective. I, I've talked to professors that do research. I've talked to climate scientists in the lab. I've, I've talked to entrepreneurs hitting it from a number of different angles. I've talked to people like Prime Coalition or you know more of the institutional funds. I, I just came from talking to Elon at Cyclotron Road. So it's like I've hit it all different ways, but nobody from the foundation world. So thank you for being the guinea pig. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. <laughs> So maybe for start, oh, and the other thing I should add just for listeners benefit is that typically just, I mean, the way it works, I usually like at least know people a little bit before, before we do the episode. And in this case, like we basically said hello and hit record. And so that's just for context for, for any listeners. I don't know what. There is no preparation in this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I did do, I did some, yeah. I mean, I, I did some homework on, I, I know all about you. No, but we, we haven't had the benefit of speaking before. So, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your work and your story. And you can take that wherever you want it to go. Sure. So I am a civil and environmental engineer by training. And I started my career in Madagascar in water resources. And you speak a zillion languages. <laughs> I do not speak Malagasy. I learned a few words when I was there. I spoke mostly French in Madagascar. And while in Madagascar, I went a few months without electricity. So the local utility called Jirama, they went bankrupt. They had a bunch of issues and just cut off the power. And that's what really set me on my journey towards energy and climate solutions. So after working in Madagascar, I went to the UK to do a master's and started my career in the nuclear energy cycle. And can I stop you for one sec? You said energy and climate solutions. There's some overlap on the Venn diagram, but those are two different, right? Yes. 
as we have learned with the great work by Project Drawdown, which I was also a part of, in Project Drawdown, we modeled over 80 solutions to climate change, everything from educating women and girls to renewable energy to plant-based diets. So yes, there are multiple solutions and we need all of them to actually solve climate change. So should I continue my story? Yes, please. No more interrupting from me. Joined the nuclear energy cycle in France, started at a spent fuel recycling plant, which is where we take the spent fuel or used fuel from nuclear reactors and run it through a process and come out with new fuel. And slowly made my way to corporate R&D, where we were acquiring renewable energy technologies, offshore wind, torrefied fuel pellets for biomass, concentrated solar power, all of these new technologies that would complement this low carbon energy base. And it was there that I realized a lot of our troubles and obstacles were around the capital and not along the technology spectrum. So I shifted my focus from engineering, project management, R&D to capital investing. What brought you to that realization? What did you observe that led you to that conclusion? Bad interest rates, meaning high interest rates from, from banks, the unavailability of capital for some of the high, perceived higher risk solutions to climate, anything that wasn't essentially fossil fuels. So if it was renewable energy, less of a track record, just getting the projects financed, getting the corporate finance as well. And what was holding the capital back at that time in your assessment? I mean, was it that the, the technology wasn't ready for prime time or was it actually ready and there was something else holding, holding the capital back from coming in? Bankers and investors were not as knowledgeable for climate solutions or let's just say zero carbon or low carbon energy solutions as they were on emitting technologies like fossil fuels. So the track record, the awareness, the ability to, to right size projects and to price them accordingly. These were all kind of knowledge gaps, awareness gaps and market gaps. And not to nitpick, but in my mind, there's a distinction between an awareness gap and a lack of track record, because a lack of track record is actually valid, whereas an awareness gap is just a lack of education, but the track record is there. So I guess it's, it's kind of moot because it's in the past anyways, but, it, but at, at that time when you observe this, should the capital have been flowing in and it wasn't, or do we need a different type of capital that, that didn't exist at that time? Well, if we take a step back, I mean, my I was sitting in a large multinational energy technology company, but if I take a step back, at that time and also this time, you have to look at matching the kind of capital to the kind of solution. Mm -hmm. So high-risk capital, low-risk capital. We can call high-risk capital venture capital for lack of a better word. But that kind of capital was definitely and still not flowing to things like direct air capture, seasonal storage, all of these things that we need to have commercialized and available. But low-risk capital like bank capital is not going to take it on. And there's a dearth of that higher risk capital available. So that's one thing. Also on the low risk spectrum. So when it comes to just scaling offshore wind, onshore wind, solar photovoltaics, things that are very much proven and in the marketplace, there's also a lack of capital there. And that's around, there are gaps there around scale, around the time horizon of investors so a lot of investors or lenders, they want to go with the three to five year loans. And a lot of those have paybacks beyond that. So there are gaps like that that exist. So across the risk return spectrum, there are gaps. Okay. So you were at this big company working on nuclear and you uncovered that the gaps were more uh, pronounced on the capital side. What did you do with that insight? What next? Working on nuclear and renewables. Oh, and renewables. Low carbon. It was low carbon energy at that stage. Thank you. And 
So I started to help really dive into the technical economic studies we were doing, the financial analysis behind it. I had then left France to go to China to work on cross-border M&A in the energy and industrial cycle, because there's so much capital available in China. There's so many solutions available globally, kind of helping with that, kind of matching those two things. And my plan was to spend a decade in China. I only spent about a year, year and a half at that stage. And the main reason was actually, ironically, the air. Here am I trying to solve an environmental problem. And it turns out that there's a big environmental problem of uh, bad air quality that inhibits me from staying long term in China. So I go to the second most innovative and dynamic place. I come back to the United States, to the market, where I join a investment firm. I hope nobody from the federal government hears this episode. They're going to like <laughs> break out in hives when they hear the that. The second most, in, in climate <laughs> solutions, please give more funding to high-risk climate solutions. Um, yes. So no, there's, there's just nothing like the growth, uh, the, the growth rate of an emerging economy like China just can't match any industrialized, highly, highly developed economy. So I'm, I'm comparing that interest rate. It's that 10% versus <laughs> the 2 or 3%. So I come to the US and I join this investment firm and I lead their clean tech, clean energy practice. That was for Village Global? Village Capital. Oh, Village Capital. I'm sorry. I don't know Village Global. I think there is actually a Village Global. There's a Village Everything. There's yeah. a Capital Everything. There's a Village Everything. This one is Village Capital. I was just trying to show off that I had done my prep, but now I stuck my foot in my mouth. So. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's Village Cap. <laughs> and, you know, the various verticals. And I was leading their energy or clean tech vertical. And great experience. Was set up an investment thesis around transportation, logistics, freight, to really reduce emissions, improve energy efficiency, and how we move around as people and how we move our goods around. And that was amazing, really focused on the domestic U.S. economy, was able to really explore the different innovation, innovation ecosystems in the U.S. And you were writing early stage? Early stage. Equity capital or? Equity, well, three kinds of checks, equity, debt, and revenue share, but mostly convertible notes at the, that early stage. And what stage were these projects in that you were funding? So... Some were pre-revenue, but most were post-revenue, early traction, but less than a million in revenue, generally speaking. Sometimes we were the first check. Sometimes we were definitely one of the first checks in. And we did something called peer-selected investments. So we got together a cohort of entrepreneurs that were addressing the same problem, just in different ways. So no direct competition. And they were evaluating each other in this process that was facilitated, moderated. And it was through that peer-selected process that we chose our investments or made our final investment decision. So very unique. I never heard on. anything like that. Yeah. So peer review is very common in academia. There's no published paper without a peer review. It is virtually non-existent in the investment world, but we were bringing that concept into that investment process. Huh. And was it purely financial oriented in the sense that, I mean, was it that, that high-risk capital that you were describing before, the venture capital asset class, or how did you... What category did you consider yourselves in, in that fund? Early stage VC, I would say. So other than that process, it looked more or less like a typical venture firm. That's a big other than that process, but yes. <laughs> it's a big caveat, but yes. No, but it- For profit. What yeah. I'm, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Is that, is it, is it, so yeah. Always seeking to solve a big challenge or a big problem in society. Okay, so you did that. 
for how long? As opposed to the latest laundry app or dating app or? Yeah, yeah. No, it's like the, well, I mean, I built a fitness app, which is maybe somewhere in between. It's making people healthier. So it's not completely missionless, but relative to climate change feels like a more existential societal problem. I'll, I'll say that. Right. No judgment, but. Right. Okay. So you did that for, for how long? So I did that for about a year and a half and before joining the Hewlett Foundation. And the Hewlett Foundation was offering this opportunity to really have a blank page and shape a whole portfolio around mobilizing capital to solve climate change that covered China, covered the European Union, covered India, and covered the United States. So is the Hewlett Foundation investing, being a major climate funder, is that a relatively new thing then? No, being a climate funder is not a new thing. There's probably one of the biggest parts of the Hewlett Foundation is the environment, and that includes conservation in the western parts of the United States and some parts of Canada and climate change. Um, we have a new, I guess, a newly refreshed strategy around climate, and that is a $600 million commitment to helping solve climate change. So that's kind of a refreshed strategy. But no, Hewlett's been from the outset has been involved in the environment and in particular in climate for a long time. And that 600 million over what time frame? Over is that? five years. Got it. And how does that compare to say the five years prior in terms of the um, philanthropy that Hewlett was doing in this area? I believe that it was less. There's a, an interesting history. When Hewlett first started to fund climate solutions, so to speak, it did that by establishing intermediaries Sometimes they're called regranters. So it established the Climate Works Foundation and it put most of its capital through that entity to do the funding. Mm -hmm. And then it evolved into what we have today, which is an in house operation, which still includes intermediaries like the Climate Works Foundation, European Climate Foundation in, in the European Union, Energy Foundation in the US, Shakti Foundation in India, so on and so forth. But it also includes a whole strategy around developing strategies, publishing strategies, and implementing those through our funding in-house. And so you work on the side of the organization that is determining who the grantees are for that $600 million? Yes. So we have sized my portfolio at about $75 million uh -huh. over, that, over those five years. And we just launched our strategy, our, made that public, the climate finance strategy. And yes, yeah, so we are, essentially my portfolio is both working on sustainable finance or innovative sustainable finance and systemic decarbonization of capital. So it's very unique in that we are able to support the prime impact fund that you know about. And we're also able to support things like the Platform for Carbon Accounting Financials or otherwise known as PCAF, which is an industry-led initiative. So bank-led, asset owner and manager-led initiative to actually begin to measure the tons of CO2 equivalent for each transaction, for each asset class of a financial institution, and have that number available disclosed, or have those numbers, I should say, available disclosed so that they can begin to actually shift those numbers, change them, reduce them, and become more aligned with the Paris Agreement. So it is very much a blank page and very much flexible in terms of what we can do with that capital to get the job done. So that six hundred million, there's so there's like a program director, and then there's program officers that have a piece of 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 that to make up the portfolio. Yes, got it. And so, how many program officers are there on the climate side? Oh, I should know, shouldn't I? There are four of us. 
And even if you're off one, because we're, we're, I'm just trying to get orders. Well, what is really unique about Although it? I can kind of, I can, I can kind of guess because you just take the 600 and divide it by 75, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not, and it's not that even, but we have this unique thing called term limits, which I think is great at the Hewlett Foundation. So we're in a period right now where we are one person short and we are hiring for that position. So that's why I was like, I, how many are we exactly? So every, we have eight year terms. And so we have the psych- people cycling in, people cycling out. But generally speaking, we have foreign climate. And I want to dig into that $75 million and and what you're f- focused on. I have a bunch of questions there. But before we do, maybe just big picture, what other buckets are there in that $600 million besides your area of focus? And even if you right. don't hit all of them, just like a... Just to get a sense. So my area of focus is quite unique because it is looking at markets mostly. I would say the bulk of resources go towards policy and shifting public policy and politics across our geographies, which are mostly India, the United States, European Union, and China. So most of the world's emissions. And we have someone that's focused on transportation or electrification, someone that's focused on power supply and the grid, and someone that's focused on the United States broadly and shifting those politics. And we're actually in the middle of kind of reshuffling that. I would say my portfolio is very clear in that it is focused on mobilizing capital for climate solutions. And I'm also the European lead. So we have a lead for each of our geographies. So kind of staying abreast of what's happening at the EU level and also within those 28 EU member countries with climate. And given that you've now worn so many different hats in the, in the climate fight for so many different types of organizations, for-profit and nonprofit and big company, et cetera, what is it that made you think that the foundation side was the right place for you now? And also within that, what drew you to this market focus that you're describing or about to describe? So it's less about foundation world or philanthropy and more just about somewhere to solve problems. Mm -hmm. It's a perch. And so I'm less embedded in the overall depth of philanthropy and more interested in solving this particular problem. And there are many ways to do that in our society and Hewlett provided opportunity to do so. So what's interesting, philanthropy is this very unaccountable part of the ecosystem that we have to set our own KPIs. We're not a business, so we don't have customers or shareholders to keep us in line. We're not a government. We don't have elections for the citizens to keep us in line or to hold us accountable. So we have to create this ourselves. So it's very interesting being in this particular space, but it is a space that provides this flexibility to further whatever goal, whatever problem it is to help really solve it in innovative ways. And when you think about philanthropy and the problem of climate change, what is the job of philanthropy and how can it have the biggest impact in the climate fight? That's the wrong question, (laughs) Jason. Tell me the right question then. So the right question is, what what do we have to have done, period? Like what what needs to happen in our world to solve this? And it's an all hands on deck thing. So for example, there isn't this such a big level of inequality in all societies in the world that has this excess capital available that has not been taxed to do these things. So I don't think the solution is philanthropy. I think the solution is we need to have 100% renewable energy. We need to have 100% zero emissions transportation, electrification. That includes electric vehicles, charging infrastructure. We need to have high-speed rail as a part of that. 
we need to move towards plant-based diets and have that be more mainstream globally. Of course, in some countries, that is already the mainstream diet. We need to sequester more carbon in our soils. We need to maintain our forests. All of those things have to happen. And so how do we get them done is then the next question. And so each of those solutions has its own barriers and has its own financial or capital barriers. And so how do we address that? So it's, I think it's less about a particular tax-exempt code of the IRS called philanthropy <laughs> than it is about solving this particular problem and how we can have all hands on deck to do so. So then if you went like down that list, sector by sector, let's say, using the drawdown list as an example, because you mentioned drawdown, is it a different mix in each one of those in terms of what should come from philanthropy versus innovation versus policy versus government versus something else or like is and, and you should look at it in terms of what's the problem and then what's the right approach using what's the right mix of these levers to, to best solve it? Well, definitely, I guess there, there are two things. One is is just the, the pure mandates and policies around having that vision and that policy behind renewable energy, plant-based diets, regenerative agriculture, storage that enables that, all of those things. So that's just from from a governmental perspective. Separate, distinct policies in each one or or an overall policy like, like pricing carbon, for example? Uh, distinct policies that make it very clear because ultimately we live and work in particular places and particular sectors. So if you're working in agriculture, it's not the same things if you're working for a renewable energy company, right? It's just not the same ecosystem of players. So yes, high level vision, but there needs to be concrete plans for each sector that has to transition. Industry, chemicals, steel, cement, steel, cement, and chemicals being the biggest part of the industry, industrial sector that has to decarbonize. All of those things have to happen in order for us to solve this, this thing called climate change. So there has to be more than just kind of a high level target or high level price. There has to be actually concrete action plans. Likewise, for the capital side, there has to be a concrete action plan and some concrete measures that come. So I would say there's two main actors. There's business and there's government. There's the policy side and there's the capital side. And then there's each of us as individuals on the behavioral side. We also have to look at the behavioral changes needed that you can't necessarily mandate or provide enough incentives for financially either. So you you need all of those things to come together. And given that it's such a systems problem and, and given that each of the groups within those categories that you just mentioned have different incentives, who quarterbacks to make sure that there's a cohesive plan that's put in place? How does that happen? Right. It's kind of like, how does the world even happen, right? The, it's There's a lot of chaos and yet there's a lot of organization. So we have to organize and there are multiple ways of doing that. I would say, going back to one of the initiatives I mentioned earlier, PCAF, that is the financial sector organizing around decarbonizing financial portfolios. What's the best methodology? How do we get it done? What are the products and innovations we can create to incentivize so that a person that's going out to lease a vehicle, they can be incentivized to go for the EV as opposed to the internal combustion engine? Like, Can our interest rate be more attractive for that EV? Those kinds of things can happen with that kind of organization. Okay. So so I guess given the top-down approach that you described of like starting with the problem and then looking at what needs to happen and then looking at what are the tools, I guess you mentioned that you have a $75 million portfolio to allocate. So 
what does that process look like then to get from, hey, I'm so excited about this opportunity. I start on Monday to figuring out what to actually do. Is your question around what to do with that portfolio, what to do as as individual? Sorry. Oh, I think what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is that your primary charter is to make sure that the portfolio that you're responsible for gets allocated in a way that can have as much impact as possible. Is that true? That is correct. Okay. So what is that process of figuring out how to determine how to allocate that money so it can have as big an impact as possible? (laughs) It's definitely more of an art than a science. So we went through a whole 18-month process of creating our strategy around just, as you've mentioned, how do we have the most impact with, with with this amount of capital? And we talked to a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders in all of our focus regions, people that are really embedded in sustainable finance, asset owners and managers, banks, those providing lending and credit, venture capital firms, private equity firms, some of the development financial institutions, the MDBs, multilateral development banks, and those that are implementing the actual solution. So the energy professionals and the the transportation professionals and the regenerative ag professionals, and just collected a lot of solutions and, and understanding the gaps and the barriers and all of the advice around what needs to happen and how our capital can help. And then, so we went through this 18 month process of gathering that and then developing a strategy as you would if you were a corporation, if you, know, if you would, uh, to how to best mobilize capital. So where we fixated for this particular portfolio was on the 1.5 trillion plus that's needed annually and globally to solve climate change. And where does that number come from? A lot of different studies. So that number, so actually the IPCC says 1.6 trillion, one point, from 1.6 to over 3 trillion is needed. There are other groups out there that have modeled around a 1 trillion needed globally annually. So independent of whose study you use to come up with that number, there needs to be at least a tripling of what we're currently spending. So we have about 500 billion going towards climate solutions. And that's based on the, the climate models. And that, like in that model where the 1.6 trillion in the IPCC report, for example, what is that money assumed to be allocated towards? Well, it's across solutions, mostly energy solutions, but also um, land, land solutions, broadly defined. There's definitely been a lot more modeling done on global energy solutions than some of the other solutions for climate. The exception would be for Project Jawdown, as an But example. does it assume, and I mean, forgive my ignorance, but it's just, this is a new way of, of thinking about things. I come from like the startup technology world, thinking about my my little piece and raising some equity capital and, and, and things like that. And, and so, the, I mean, this is just a much different world and I don't have my bearings yet, which is the reason I was excited to start this chapter of the journey, right? But is it assumed that, I mean, I, mean, I guess just structurally is that philanthropic 1.6 trillion is that investment 1.6 trillion is that is it assuming any type of return on the initial money that is allocated like how i i guess i'm having trouble just ma- just kind yeah. of picturing what that number represents yeah i mean that's investments and that's across a variety of solutions both large-scale infrastructure so investing like into companies out. or investing into r&d it's mostly project based but however you can tie that number to the tons of CO2E, right? So it's not, if you, you could imagine a $1 going to a company, that company may not use that $1 that translates to tons of CO2E, right? This is really going towards the tons of CO2E. So that, that install project, whether it's done, done by a company or 
or let's say a state-owned enterprise or a privately owned enterprise that's kind of independent of that. So that's it's mapped to the solution. Okay. So, but so so I cut you off because I had a question, but the but the but you, which you just answered. So so there's the 1.6 trillion that we'll need on an annual basis, and, and then what what did you do to then figure out how to like what was the next step in that 18 month evaluation? Sure. Yeah. So <laughs> then we we see how much is currently being sp- being spent or being financed, and we begin to identify what are the barriers inhibiting the capital from flowing at at the right speed, and so we identified the barriers. And then what are they? There are multiple. Some we kind of outlined earlier around time horizons, the short term nature of lending and investing versus the the longer payback periods, but also the longer time horizons of climate projects and, and climate impacts. You know, you have certain barriers that are at the very project level. So I, I was mentioning some of the things that high risk capital could serve. So that's, for example, there's a dearth of that kind of capital willing to take those risks. And then there's their risk or barriers at the portfolio level. So when you have, for example, a series of stocks or a series of bonds and you're managing that and you could be tempted to go and put the fossil fuel asset in, in your portfolio has a track record, which is not the barrier, lack of, lack of the same amount of track record as similar solutions or let's say emitting solutions. And you might be able to do that and still have a return in the short term versus if you hold it for long, that's definitely a, a stranded asset. So there's a, a mismatch between kind of the way decisions are being made and the needs for, for the planet. Okay, so you identify key barriers, and then what? And then- This is so, uh, this is all new for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then we explore what we've done in the past, what others are doing in the ecosystem. So what other foundations, for example, and what are the gaps to addressing those barriers? So sometimes we need to reinforce what others are doing, what we've done in the past. And sometimes we need to go completely new places and address gaps because no one else is tackling those. And when did you complete this 18-month process? Literally, the strategy was released a few days ago. And was that the post that said, I think it was like 2019 to 2024? 2018 to 2023, yes. Ah, so, yeah. Close. So we were- I, re- I did read it. We were implementing that strategy all along since 2018, since January 2018, and we just have re- been refining it and finalizing it, and so now it's out into the ether. And what's like a summary version of the key pillars of that strategy as it relates to your area of purview? So one of the key things about this strategy is a recognition that we can no longer, own, as climate finance philanthropy, so to speak, only focus on the institutions and the decision makers at the top of those institutions. So I think historically we focused on convincing the CEO of this particular asset owner or the CIO or CFO to take a certain action. And we thought that all the problems would be solved if we just did that. Well, when you look at the the decision-making pyramid, really you have individuals, households, consumers making up the bulk of it, the base of it. It's our money, like what they would what they would historically call like mom and pop, mom and pop, or I I like to put mom and pop shops at the next layer, the SME layer, but sure, but it's it's our savings that make up this the the assets of pension funds, it's our deposits that make up the assets of banks, and that has been almost completely ignored by climate finance philanthropy. Then you have the next layer of small and medium sized enterprises, so that's where I put mom and pop shops that make up the bulk of employment 
across our economies that we're focusing on and decision makers around how capital was spent as well. Then you have the next layer, which is the large corporations themselves. And then you have the final layer, so that Fortune 500, so to speak. Then the final layer is actually the financial institution. So those asset owners, managers, banks, VCPE firms. And then encompassing the whole pyramid, you have government oversight. And all of that has to align around Paris. The Paris Agreement has to align around well below two degrees Celsius world. So that is one of the, I guess, biggest points of our new strategy is that we're working on the entire pyramid and not only that top layer of just the financial institutions. And so if that's your, if those are the buckets within which you're looking to help, what does that help actually look like in terms of the types of projects that you might like to support? So am I assuming right in that most of your listeners are in the U.S.? No, it's a it's a mix. So it's right now it's about uh, it's it's about eighty percent U.S., but it's actually trending down percentage wise as the word of mouth spreads. I mean, climate change is a global global problem, and I've tried to have a wide mix of guests. I would say the guests have been heavily focused in the U.S. because, although not exclusively, just because that's where I happen to be. And so it's like why and in person is so much better. But directionally, I absolutely want to look at the focus of the podcast is not U.S. It, the focus is global, but it's just happening in stages and it, it's more heavily weighted to the U.S. early on. But that's going to normalize over time. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll choose I'll choose most examples from from the U.S. But so you have a global focus is what I'm hearing. Actually, 80 percent, at least 80 percent of capital does not cross a border. So Money, even though there's a lot of global trade, money, capital is very, very national. The minute you cross the border, that presents risks to investors, whether it's currency risk or just unknown risk, perceived risk, all kinds of things. So it's actually very national when it comes to, or even regional when it comes to capital mobilization. So on one hand, there's a global element, but really we're, we're taking a deep dive on three economies, China, the United States, and the European Union and the 28 countries for now in the European Union. So full stack, three countries. Yes. Okay. So, so to give you some examples of what that- I'm noticing that a theme, which I really like, by the way, is that when you, you can't just like jump to the thing, you first need to frame it and start at the highest level and then work your way in, right? <laughs> which I think is a really durable, it's like a substantive way to answer a question. I like it. Yeah. But now, I, now I'm, you know, I'm used to your style. So I just need to incorporate <laughs> that when I delve into the next topic. <laughs> <laughs> So, for example, in the United States, there's over 12 trillion U.S. dollars in deposits, bank deposits. And so if we can even mobilize 1% of that, that's like very material to our goal. So one thing we've done is to help capitalize the Clean Energy Federal Credit Union. There are over 5,000 banks in the U.S. or over 5,000 credit unions in the U.S. Credit unions are on the front lines of doing this kind of lending when it comes to EVs, energy efficiency equipment, or they at least could theoretically be doing that when it comes to rooftop solar, all of these elements that need to be scaled massively. And so there's a new credit union called the Clean Energy Credit Union that's available in all 50 states, virtual online credit union. Um, anyone can become a member. And I'll have to link to it in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> and so we help to capitalize that. And we're working with various credit union societies or associations, including one called Inclusive, without the E on the N, to help scale what they're doing and help replicate what they're doing among the other 5,000 or so credit unions. So that's an example. 
We're also- And is that earmarked? So in that case, if you support it, is it just like a blank check or is it earmarked that it's got to be used in specific ways? That is direct balance sheet capital. Got it. And as a, and this is, again, I've, I've never applied for a grant before, so this is just like a newbie question, but if I'm building something, call it a company, call it a project, I don't you know, a nonprofit, like how do I know when it might be a good candidate for a grant? Yes, it goes back to the unaccountability of, of philanthropy. <laughs> Either if the foundation has to tell you what it's looking for, and not all foundations tell you. For this, you would look at the strategy, and we have very concrete key performance indicators or implementation markers. We have very clear action items. But any company could just apply for a grant. They might not get accepted, but there's no rules. It's like, whoa, if it's not this class of organization or things like that, then it's not eligible. It doesn't work that way. Right. At least not for this particular portfolio. I think different institutions have different kind of parameters, criteria, rules. So it's not standardized. So I don't know if you, in the US, there's, I guess, I'm forgetting the name of it, but when you apply to university, there's a common application. Oh, yeah. I use that. It wasn't as personal, so I felt like my odds were worse, but, <laughs> but, but for, for at least the schools I cared about less, it was like, you know, and this was a long time ago, so I don't know if it works the same way. So there's no common application, so to speak, equivalent for all of these different foundations. So it's difficult to answer the question in general because it really just depends. And there's a lack of transparency for many different philanthropic organizations. Some philanthropic organizations are private, non-operating, and therefore are required to report certain things to the IRS. But some are just LLCs legally, and they don't have to, they just are private corporations and they don't have to do that same reporting and they don't expect to have a tax break and that, those kind of things. So it's really the wild, wild west. And this is another newbie question, and maybe it depends on the foundation as well and, and different philosophies, but in the venture capital world, which I understand better, you might have a fund that's X dollar size. And then within that, typically the fund writes checks of between X and Y and, and right. they tend to come in at this stage. Like, do you have similar criteria or is it all over the map? So like within, so, you know, within your area of focus, could you allocate across 300 grantees or three grantees and it's up to seeing what you like or, or are there constraints in terms of, or a comfort level that you try to have in terms of diversification? It is not, in many ways, what we're looking for is like a VC fund. I mean, we're, we're looking at the, the quality of the, of the teams. We know that there has to be pivots for any ideas. And so there's some similarities there. But when it comes to kind of the standardization of those investment criteria, there's a lot. And not just the criteria, but also the percentage of concentration. So could and you put concentration, 80%? Yeah. Oh, so you, you, no. you, so you can, you, you, ha you have liberty in that regard. Theoretically, a lot of liberty. Yeah. So my checks have ranged from 25K to 10 million single checks. Okay. And, and switching gears for, for a moment, one of the stats that I heard in my journey, and I haven't talked to foundations yet, but I heard from people, you know who I heard it from primarily is people who depend on foundations for their funding. <laughs> and, and what they've told me is that there's like 18 foundations that are responsible for 80% of climate giving. Is, mm -hmm. is, does that sound right to you? That sounds maybe perhaps, well, I think if you define climate giving very narrowly, that's probably true. If you but, don't, if you but, don't look at no, if you thought. don't yeah. look at the if you don't, if you're not thinking about the eighty drawdown solutions to climate, that's probably true. If you're thinking climate is funding some kind of policy building exercise around clean energy adoption, then yes, it's probably those eighteen funding eighty percent. But if you think of 
broadly about climate, then that's probably not accurate. Let me think of how I want to ask this. So, but those eight, sorry, those 18 are probably communicating with each other a lot and they're probably more well known. But I would say that's a, a, a certain perspective on what we need to solve climate change. Well, given how much we need to do to solve the problem and how behind we are, do you feel like philanthropy has a bigger role to play than it's playing today? And if so, what's been holding it back? Oh, your philanthropy questions. Um, I tried, I, to, so, I tried okay. to ask it in a way that I wasn't going to yeah. get scolded. Well, but let, let me say this. <laughs> I, I started a book club at the Hewlett Foundation to first read Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Our second book was Just Giving. And our third book- I'm going to link to all of these, Yes, the our third book was Decolonizing Wealth. All three of these books take a critical view of philanthropy, especially, I mean, in the sense of institutionalized philanthropy, mostly from a Western perspective, especially from a U.S. perspective in the IRS tax code here. So let's just say there's a, I have a critical lens. Got it. Okay, that. so you, so, yeah, finish. Sorry. So I, maybe I should have started with that. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but that's new information. So you yes. are skeptical of philanthropy in general, but you think that the Hewlett approach is different. How? We have term limits, so we limit our power. We publish our strategies. We try to be transparent. So there's more accountability. We create accountability. There is no one that requires it from us. I mean, the IRS, to some extent, because we're a private non-operating, we have this tax exemption, but that's very light. It's not, not the same thing as being a government or a, a business. But you feel like your approach is, is the exception rather than the rule in philanthropy overall? Well, definitely the term limit part is definitely an exception. Do you feel like your brand of philanthropy has a bigger role to play than is being played Our today? Brand. And if so, what's holding it back? <laughs> I definitely think strategic climate work is needed and that needs to be funded at a much bigger scale. I'll say that. Maybe, okay, let's try a different question. <laughs> what is the biggest thing holding back our ability to make progress on solving climate change? Thank you. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> See, now we're getting to know each other. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, <laughs> listeners, we should have prepared. <laughs> the biggest things, the two, I, put, I, I would bucket them into two. One is the politics and policy, and the other is the capital, literally. And people have a key role in that, like the listeners, individuals. On one hand, it's the voting. And on the other hand, it's shifting your capital. It's choosing that sustainable bank. So those are the two things that have to shift. And when you say, I mean, let, let's, take, let's take each of those. So politics and policy, maybe just go one level more granular, like where are we and where do we need to get to in that regard? We're losing big time globally. Emissions are increasing. They're increasing in all of the economies that emit the most carbon. So pretty dire. And how is policy holding us back and what type of policy should be put in place that would put us in a better position? So- for example, renewable portfolio standards of 100% renewable energy, which incorporates serious storage. The, likewise for transportation. So complete electrification mandates and things like green bonds used to help build out charging infrastructure. Things like green bonds being used to build out rail infrastructure in a place like the US. In places like China, once again, it's already, that, that part's already been done, the high-speed rail, and that can always be improved or enhanced. But that's that's pretty well done. Regenerative agriculture being a, a big piece of this. So improving the sequestration in soil. So 
improving soil health. So helping farmers convert their soil so that it's healthier, so that it sequesters more carbon. And what type of policy would be impactful there? Incentives and rebates for, for conversion. That's one. Mandating, you know, for, for, for example, cattle raising, mandating some kind of silver pasture and helping and providing the, the, the financing to, to, to help with that. Not, not just mandating, but also providing the, the, the capital and incentives and to make it attractive. And for these examples and for other types of policy that would be impactful that doesn't exist today, what is the biggest thing that could change that would help bring about more of the right policy? Well, I'll first answer what we don't need more of. We know exactly what needs to be done. Like we have done so much modeling, so many analytical exercises. We know exactly what we need to do technically. So it's not, enough, it's not more technocratic solutions or analysis. It is simply getting it done. So it's the political will to get it done. It's partnership with communities, with businesses, including financial institutions. It's a roadmap, incentives, and actions to get it done. And it sounds so simple because it actually is. <laughs> it really is that simple now that we know what needs to happen. And then on the, on the voting side, um, I mean, if people do care and they want to bring about more of these types of policies, I struggle a little bit because on the one hand, it's looking at who's got the boldest plan, but on another, it's about who has the best ability to bring about any plan and to actually make progress when it comes to things like putting durable legislation in place, which I guess debatably, but some people argue requires bipartisan support. So how do you think about that in terms of the most impactful use of one's vote if you care about climate change? Well, I think there is, if you look at certain economies like the United Kingdom, like China, like even India, I mean, there is broad nonpartisan support. It's not a partisan issue. There is nonpartisan support for keeping the planet. Like, do you want to earth? Yeah, I want to earth. So let's get it done. I mean, it's not. And actually, you, you see in, in the U.S. when you actually poll the public, it's also nonpartisan. <laughs> so something has happened which is not representing the people across this particular economy. So what does that mean in terms of people showing up at the polls? I mean, yeah, it means you got to go out and vote <laughs> for the people that are actually representing solving this and keeping, keeping the earth together, which means keeping the economy, keeping our families, keeping, it just has ripples effects throughout everything. And our last couple of questions, one is just if you had $100 billion and you could allocate it towards anything in the climate fight to maximize its impact, where would you put it and how would you allocate it? If I had how much? $100 billion. $100 billion. If I had $100 billion, are you limiting me in terms of geography or where, where can I put it? You can do whatever you want. In any kind of climate sure. solution. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's not, it's not US-centric. It's not- It's just- California centric. It's, it's, well, it's, it's, which yeah. it's to, to overall, like as a species. Yeah. And my answer might be like boring. So I'm sorry in advance, but I would put them into sustainable banks. I would capitalize the banks who are going to keep, keep this going. So it wouldn't be a one-off 100 billion. It would be at least you would immediately, when you put it into a banking structure, you have at least a tenfold increase, like literally. It sounds like I need to cover sustainable banks because uh, you're not the first guest to bring up sustainable banks or green banks and haven't had on a, anybody that represents that perspective. If you have any ideas either now or, or once you have a chance to reflect, that'd be an interesting topic. Yes, I know all the sustainable banks. <laughs> so I, don't they, know, I don't know any. <laughs> so there's an organization called the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, completely global, literally dots on the map on every continent. And their membership represents a lot of the banks that are getting this job done. And so there's those kinds of banks. There's also the Clean Energy Credit Union, which I mentioned, which is a startup. But you have larger banks that can finance larger infrastructure projects. And you have 
smaller institutions that can also finance smaller distributed projects. But regardless, I would funnel it through that way. That way, the lending can happen in perpetuity, so to speak. And my last question is just for any listener that's trying to figure out their own lane, they're concerned about this problem and trying to figure out how to help. I know you mentioned voting as a big thing that they could do, and maybe that's the biggest thing. But other than voting, what other advice do you have for people trying to figure out how they can have the biggest impact on helping with this problem? I would move your cash into a sustainable bank. That's what I would do, because that is a one-time thing. It's a one action, and it has ripple effects that permeate throughout all these solutions to climate change. Wow, you've given me some good homework. I got to go and and dig into that topic because I don't know much about it yet, but it sounds important. Worthy of exploration. Yes, worthy of exploration. I have a website that has some links. Oh, yeah? What's the the website? It's just MarilynWaite.com, and there's a a slash to sustainable banking and investing. Awesome. Anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners or for me? No, thank you for inviting me. This was awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot. You give me some good homework, and uh, thank you for all the work you do. I wish you every success. Thanks. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.